Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to prepare for communion in just a moment. Um, but before that, I have uh, an announcement slash kind of a statement to make. Uh, yesterday, I was out for a walk, and there is a man who lives about four blocks away from us with whom I frequently have conversations. Saw him out yesterday, and we were talking and he said to me, so you're a pastor, right? Yep, I'm a pastor. He said, so what do you think about the whole gay thing? And I kind of smiled to myself because you'll find out why in a minute here the statement that we're going to make. Um, and he said, um, uh, what do you think about the whole gay thing? He said, is that something that you, are you for it or are you against it? Is basically what he said. And, I, and this is what I told him. I said, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and he made human beings, and he made them male and female. There are two sexes, female sex and the male sex, and one cannot ever be the other, no matter what. And within then this, these two sexes, God created marriage, which is a, a man and a woman, and only a man and a woman coming together in holy matrimony. And God also created in that marriage relationship the gift of sex. And the gift of sex is for procreation, and it is also for pleasure, and it is a good thing that God created within the confines of marriage. And I continue to tell him that anything outside of that is sin. Um, the young woman or the young man who is sowing their wild oats in promiscuity is outside of marriage, and it is sin. Um, the man or the woman who is married and they are in an adulterous relationship, it is sin. It's outside of marriage. Um, homosexuality, whether it's men or women, lesbianism or uh, homosexuality, it is sin because it is outside of the bonds of marriage. And we would say also that um, um, God has made us as sexual beings, but he's given us an identity as a sex or gender, male and female, and that um, he's made you that way, and it is up to us. Maybe people struggle with these things, yes. But to, uh, to get back to what God says, God made me a man, God made me a woman, and those are the things that we believe. And then he said to me, well, do you tell your congregation that, or you just kind of keep it quiet? <laughs> I said, no, we talk about these things. These things are important. And the reason I bring it up is this. The, the, just, it was timely that this man asked me this question, um, sometime back, John MacArthur called on pastors around the world to take January 16th as a Sunday to preach on this issue of s biblical sexuality. We just started the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, and I uh, did not think it was a, a good timing to, to do that. So we're, we're standing in solidarity with all of those who are preaching that message this morning around the world. And it's important for us to take a stand and say, this is what we believe. We're not ashamed of what we believe in the scriptures. Amen. That's right, yes. And um, also, part of the issue that came up, not many miles north of here, in Canada, there is a new law, I'm not sure if it's passed or not, I think it is, that outlaws any kind of conversion therapy, whether it is um, uh, with counseling or even it extends to, uh, it can be interpreted to extend to churches, for instance, and uh, counseling. And that uh, we have a similar law in the state of Washington, by the way, but it's not quite as strict. But in Canada, um, if a pastor stands in the pulpit and says what I just said, I would have just broken the law. Or if tomorrow morning a young man comes to me and says, hey, I was in church yesterday and I'd like to become a Christian. And uh, I would sit down with that young man and I'd say, we're all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there are all kinds of sins, and all of us are, are guilty of sin, uh, all sin, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. God has created the answer for that. He sent his son to die for our sins, to take them away. And when we repent of our sins and we place our faith in Christ, we become a new creation, a new, new creature. We're sanctified and we're made holy, and we are to now live a life that is honoring and glorifying to God. If I were to say that, and he were to say, but, but I'm, you know, I'm... What about homosexuality? Said, yes, that too. I wouldn't say, well, you must repent of lying and cheating and stealing and anger and violence and embezzlement, but that, you know, sexual sins, no. 
because I want to keep the law. No, we must uh, repent of all sin and turn to the Lord. How this relates to uh, communion is this way. The Apostle Paul will say to us in 1 Corinthians in a number of weeks ahead, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's the grace that God offers to anyone regardless of what sin is in their life, what they struggle with. And yes, people continue to struggle after coming to Christ. But we have been washed, we've been sanctified, and we have been blessed by the grace that he's given to us. And thus we come to the Lord's table to celebrate that not just have we been cleansed from sexual sin, but any sin by virtue of Christ our Lord. In fact, Paul goes on to to say this as well. Um, He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we share a sharing in the blood of Christ? In fact, I want you to notice um, uh, our, our, our text up here this morning. I want you to notice our text. And I want you to notice the words that are emboldened because uh, verses 4 through 8 are one sentence, but I want you to notice the emphasis of the Apostle Paul. I thank my God, always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When you see those words emboldened, you see Paul is making a statement, is he not? The blessings that are ours in salvation, they come from God the Father and they are through God the Son. He is the means of delivery to us, sacrifice of Christ. And when we partake of the Lord's table, we're remembering these things are true of us. We have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified by the blood of Christ. He begins by saying, I thank my God always. The word thank is, is the word Eucharisto. We get the word Eucharist from it. Um, we're not high ch- church, and we don't refer to this as the Eucharist because the scriptures mainly refer to it as the Lord's table and the Lord's supper. But it is a giving of thanks. It is a praise to God. It's, a, it's an object lesson of what God has done for us. He gave his son who gave his body, who shed his blood for us. And every time we partake of it, we are declaring his, his death until he returns. Notice also in verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is the word koinonia. We are in union with Christ. That's why Paul says, <clears throat> speaking of the Lord's table, He says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? The word sharing is the word koinonia, participation, fellowshipping in the blood of Christ. We have union with him. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in in the body of Christ? Yes, it is. Koinonia, participation. We are in union with him. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread that is the bread of life. This is our declaration this morning, that we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified from all past sins, and we do so together as one body with thanksgiving. Father, we 
thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the word of Christ, who is the living word and the bread of life. We thank you that you sent him, that we might partake of him and be in union and fellowship with him through his blood and this broken body. As we partake of this bread and this cup this morning, we do so with great thanksgiving to you, for you are a good and gracious God. And we look forward to your soon return. And in the meantime, what you will teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that word gift is the word grace. It is the gift of grace. And that is what we're talking about this morning, the gratitude of grace. And we're going to jump right into our passage as we talk about the gratitude of grace. And we see in verse 4 right off the bat, gratitude for grace in Christ, this is what Paul demonstrates to us in verse 4. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul's thanksgiving is directed upward. He recognizes God as the giver, as the source of this grace that has come. And Paul is beginning a thanksgiving section, which is similar to many of his letters. And he continues to enumerate to the Corinthians and for us the positive truths that the Corinthians possess in Christ. And this, of course, is key, that all that he has graciously said about them is because of the work of God through Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that he continues to speak very eloquently with high praise about them. As we know, there are many problems in Corinth and he will get to them in due time. But at this point, it is by their union with Christ that all these things about them are true. And everything that he says about them that he saw, we saw last week and everything that we're going to see him say about them this week, everything is true in spite of the fact that they are not living up to that holiness. This is true for us as well. And right off the bat, the best things that are true of us are truths because of our standing with Christ. The best things that are true about me are are things that are true because of my standing with Christ. The best things that are true about you are truths because of who you are in Christ in and all that he has given to you by his grace. Notice, this grace, these thanksgivings, are not because of anything that we have done. The things that are true of you are true not because of something that you have done, not because of your great personality, not because you're attractive, not because of all of your achievements, but the things that are most true and best about you are found in Christ Jesus. Embrace that. Because we have a tendency to grab the things, uh, you know, uh, your appearance, your achievements, your giftedness, whatever it may be. Paul is going to lay all of that out and say, no, the best things true of us are in Christ. So Paul is is, uh, keeping... Uh, this idea going that he's speaking these wonderful things about the Corinthians. He gives thanks to God. When we give thanks on Thanksgiving, maybe you sit around the, the Thanksgiving table and you say, so everyone say something they're thankful for. And everybody says, well, I'm thankful for, you know, my country. I'm thankful for our church. I'm thankful for our family and those things, yes. But there is an object of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving must be to whom? It must be to God. If it is just thanksgiving, then it's capricious. I'm just thankful. Well, no, thanksgiving means to say, 
thank you, there is a, a subject. I thank God, and he is the object of our thanksgiving. And Paul does that here as well. He doesn't thank the Corinthians, does he? He doesn't say, hey, Corinthians, I want to start off by saying thank you. You guys, man, you're rocking it. Thank you for the letter you sent. Thank you for the gift. Thank you that you've been so um, encouraging to me. He doesn't say any of that because there are a lot of things that are not worthy of thanking the, the Corinthians for. But he thanks God for what God has done in in that sense, we can always thank God for other believers, even if they're, they're not pulling their weight, even if they're struggling, even if we're uh, at odds with them, we can still thank God for the things that are true in their lives because they are true if they're in Christ. And his expression is this, I thank my God always concerning you. Always. His Thanksgiving of the Corinthians are not rare or infrequent. In fact, they are consistent when he says, I always give thanks for you. I don't know how Paul did this because he says this in in many of the other epistles as well. And he'll say, I thank my God always in every mention of you in my prayers. He must have spent a good portion of every day praying for the churches at Ephesus and Rome and Corinth and in Philippi, etc., 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 praying for people by name, thanking God for them, and praying for the things that were happening in those churches. He must have spent an enormous amount of time because we must take him at his word when he says, I'm always consistently giving thanks for you. Now, we've made this point before, but I think it's worth repeating here. Thanksgiving is probably the easiest thing for us to take for granted. True? Thanksgiving is probably one of the easiest things for us to take for granted. We're good at asking, right? We're good at asking, God, would you do this for me? Would you help me? Would you give me grace? Would you give me understanding? Would you provide my needs? Would you provide help? Would you provide the money? Would you change his heart? Would you change her heart? Would you give me the, the job? Would you give me safety, etc., etc., etc.? We're really good at asking But when we receive, we're not so good at coming back and saying, thank you, Lord. We need to be better. Last week I said, I want this to be a place of grace. I want Valley Bible Church to be a church of grace. We want to be a church of gratitude as well. We want to be people. You know, there's nothing worse than being ungrateful, is there? We need to pay attention to this, that we should be people who are grateful and thankful to God for the things that he has done for us. Here are some reminders from other passages of Scripture. In Philippians 4, you know, Philippians, we've been through that book, there was suffering going on. And in that last chapter, Paul is saying, in spite of circumstances, he says this, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, same word, let your request be made known to God. When you pray, give thanks. All we, I've always I've said it before, I think it's a bit rude to just barge into the throne room of God and say, hey God, would you do this for me? Wait a minute, to whom are you speaking? The king of the universe. Thank you for my salvation. I praise you for your holiness and your good and goodness and mercy, etc. And by the way, will you forgive my sins? And you get those things out of the way and then, Kindly would you hear my request, gracious Lord. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, these are commands, these are imperatives. Rejoice, how often? Always. Pray, how often? Without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything, give thanks. Not just when you're thinking about, oh, what am I thankful for? In every circumstance, give thanks to God because there is always something for which we can praise Him and give Him thanks. Always. But this is one of those rare places in the Scripture where it spells out specifically this is God's will for your life, like your sanctification. People come to me all the time, hey, I'm I'm trying to decide God's will. Um, Should I take this job? Should I join the military? Should I go to this school? Should I marry this guy? Whatever it may be. 
and I can't say to them, well, it is God's will for you to do this. I can say this. It is God's will for you to give thanks in everything. And when we're not in God's will, what are we in? Sin to some extent, yes. We're not, we're not doing as we've been called. Because it would be a, a state of ungratefulness. And he doesn't, why should we be ungrateful? We have so much. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. This is, what the, this is what the Christian life looks like. This is what the spiritual life looks like. This is what the spirit-directed, spirit-filled life looks like. Be filled with the spirit. It's a command. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, we have to do this together. We cannot forsake our assembling. We must come together and sing with one another and to one another, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. Even when things are hard. Why? How can we do this? Because God causes all things to work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. No, we don't say, God, thank you that I have cancer. But in that cancer, in that, that struggle, we can say, God, thank you that you have given an opportunity for your glory and grace to be seen in my life. Giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We give thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. So in this first verse where Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you, here's the content. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Salvation is based on grace. Yes, for by grace you've been saved through faith. But Paul is not talking specifically about the grace of salvation here. He is talking about the broader sense in which when we are saved by grace, there are many other graces that God gives to us. We, we enter into a life and an existence of grace. The very ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness is a gift of grace that he gives to us. All things are his grace given to us, not just salvation. And Paul is going to enumerate those graces that have been given, how grace has been demonstrated in the lives of the Corinthians and as they should be for us as well. As he says as well, I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. We didn't talk about this last week, and we're going to pause here because we're beginning an epistle. We've not been in for a while. Some of you may not understand this or have been exposed to this. This phrase, in Christ, is an important phrase in the writings of the Apostle Paul and all of the New Testament. Sometimes it appears as in Christ, in Him, in the Lord, in Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ our Lord. And the word in, the, the, that preposition means we are in him. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and I am in him. We've been united with him in baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've been placed into Christ so we are identified with him. We are in union with him. We are in participation with him and fellowship with him. And that's what he is going to be talking about in the rest of this passage. We are in Christ. And all that that means is something that is quite remarkable. So this grace given in verses 5 through 8, we're going to look at that. The grace given, he just, he just said, I thank God for the grace he's given to you in Christ Jesus. And he is going to talk about what grace accomplishes in our lives. Grace given in verses 5 through 8. And first of all, grace given enriches our lives in Christ. This grace that is given to us enriches our lives in Christ. He says in verse 5, after saying this grace which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. There's the phrase. In all speech and all knowledge. 
Grace has changed their lives. Grace has changed your life if you are a Christian. Grace has changed our lives. It has enriched our lives. That in everything you have been enriched. When he comes into our life by that invasion of grace, nothing is the same. Everything changes. And our lives are enriched. And the grace of salvation is more than just uh, yeah, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's not just, okay, I believed. And so there's this transaction in heaven in which an accountant, no offense to our accountants, but an accountant in heaven notices that you are a believer, flips the switch and says, okay, you get to go to heaven when you die. See you then. No, that's not how salvation works. We're given grace that extends to every part of our lives. It enriches our lives. Noticeably, for the Corinthians, he says, in all speech and all knowledge, all kinds of speech and knowledge, this is something they were good at in Corinth. They were proud of it. And yet their very skill and their expertise are God-given, and he's making that point to them because we're going to see in, in the next part of this chapter, in chapter 2, in chapters 12 through 14, the very good things that God gave to them, they are misusing, as we can as well. So for us, all we have is from him. All we have is from him. Paul is going to say this later in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. For who regards you as superior? When he's getting, he's getting down to brass tacks with them. Who regards you as superior, O Corinthians? <clears throat> what do you have that you did not receive? What's the expected answer to that question when he poses it to them? What do you have that you did not receive? Okay, nothing. Why, then... If you did receive what God has given to you, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, but you got it yourself? It's something you earned or something you worked at or something that was part of your, your wonderful personality and your hard work. No, what, what Paul is laying out in, in this Thanksgiving portion is to let the Corinthians know that all good things, all of grace is theirs through Christ, and it is not of themselves. Not just salvation, but their ministry, their giftedness, and all the things that they accomplish, it comes from Christ himself. Second, grace given confirms our faith in Christ. It confirms our faith in Christ. He says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So he says, he says then, that this grace has been given to you through Jesus Christ, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them by the Apostle Paul was confirmed by their response of faith. And he spent a year and a half with them. He knows their, their faith was genuine. He knows there are some that are maybe not as genuine. But the confirmation of their faith is seen in that their lives are enriched. The graces given to them, they're, they're ministering those things like all kinds of speech and knowledge. But their faith was genuine. And their confession of Christ, when Paul preached it, was born out in the fruit of their lives as it is for us as well. We need to note here at this point, Paul is talking to the entire church. And he would, of course, and will teach elsewhere, the teaching of Christ, that amongst the wheat there are tares. Just as there are here. I mean, we have people, everyone here, I don't know, maybe not everyone, but most people would claim to know Jesus Christ. But there are some people that claim to know Christ in this room that don't know Christ. And the Bible predicts that. And we're, that's why we preach the gospel every Sunday. That's why we preach this over and over and over again. Because we want to make sure that you understand and, you, and that your faith is confirmed. As we give you the testimony of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Christ. So for us, true faith 
in Christ is always confirmed by true fruit. That's a consistent teaching of the scriptures. Consistent. True faith in Christ is always confirmed by true fruit. And the grace of God is confirmed in our lives by faith. He confirms our faith. When we respond truly, when we're born again and the Spirit lives in us and we're given all the graces of salvation, how can it not make a difference in one's life? How can you not be changed? Of course you will be changed. Third, grace given confers our sufficiency in Christ. It confers on us the sufficiency that we have in Christ. When grace is given to us, we receive that that conference of his sufficiency. So he says in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The church in Corinth wasn't lacking in spiritual gifts. It was an apostolic church during the apostolic age. And we're going to see later there are in operation in this church. People are speaking in tongues. People are giving prophecies, word of knowledge. Um, people are being healed. People are interpreting tongues. They're all the chari- what we call the charismatic gifts. And we'll get there in due time. But we believe that in, uh, when the apostolic age uh, passed from the scene and the apostles died off, that those sign gifts, for the most part, passed off. God can do whatever he wants. But the normal function of those apostolic gifts passed with the, with the apostles. But they were not lacking of anything. The word gift here is the word charisma. Charisma. Now, the word grace we've been talking about is the word charis. And some of you have known a young lady whose name was charis, which is the Greek word for grace. And charisma is... Is a, is a similar word, obviously related. Charisma, we think of someone as charisma, someone, I don't have charisma, but someone who's got that personal magnetism, you know, oh, they're so charismatic, charismatic individual. What Paul is referring to here is probably the wide scope of graces given at salvation. Charisma is used of salvation itself in Romans 5. In Romans 11, Paul uses the word charisma of all the gifts, where he says in the Romans eleven twenty nine, for the gifts, the charisma, and the calling of God are irrevocable. God gives us gifts, all the gifts of grace, at the calling of our salvation to sanctification, called as saints, and he does not take that away. He cannot, he will not. And so I am convinced here that Paul is speaking in the wider sense when he uses charisma, that God has enriched their lives, he has enriched our lives in such a way that the emphasis is on what you do not lack. I think that's the emphasis. Because stated positively is, you lack nothing. You have all that there is. You have all that there is. And I think that that's where the emphasis should be, that for the, the Corinthians and for us, we have all that we need. Instead of stating it negatively, you don't lack any gift. You have all you need. It was given by grace. God did not leave the Corinthians high and dry. There wasn't something else that they needed to do or to receive from God. Something else because they had all that they needed. True for you as well. True for us as well. We who are in Christ lack nothing in Him. Okay? We who are in Christ, we lack nothing in Him. We have all that we need. You have all that you need. You are complete in Christ. We've talked about these passages before, Colossians. You have been made complete. What is there beyond completion? When something is completed, that's it, right? You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter says, 
You've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Yes, you're saved by grace, but he also graces you with the new nature, the Holy Spirit, the, the church, um, being born again, uh, understanding of the scriptures, etc., 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 so that all that you do is by his grace. And there isn't anything standing in the way of your sanctification except for you. And we have all that we need in Christ. Going back to John chapter 1 for a minute, and I'm not sure that we gave this verse its due when we were in John, which says this, For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. We have the fullness of Christ. What is beyond full? There isn't anything. And grace upon grace John is struggling to, to describe how the graces that come our way are grace upon grace. I like the, the HCSB that says, We have all received grace after grace in his fullness, or one gracious gift as another. Another translation says, He's enough. He is enough. I can't tell you, I don't understand this. I do understand it to some extent, but it is odd to me because I've seen it in many years of, of Christian ministry that Christians do not think that Christ is enough. They want something more. Brothers and sisters, he is enough. He's all that there is. You don't need an answer to prayer to make him more real to you. You don't need him to speak to you or do some miracle to, to make him more real. He is not any less real. He is always the same. He never changes and all the graces that he's given to us are sufficient. David Pryor, one, uh, I just dipped into uh, one, uh, one of the commentators this week, and I just saw this quote right off the bat, and I go, this is it, I'm going to use this. But he says this, listen, in giving us his son Jesus, God has given us all that he has. You like that? When he gave us his son, Jesus, he gave us all that he has. What, what more could he give? You know, that old song, Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? He could not give any more. He gave us his son. He goes on to say this. He can give us no more. We have everything in him. You have everything in Christ. There isn't any more. Don't seek it, don't want it, don't wish for it. Just get to know him and settle down with him. With the psalmist, Asaph, um, Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth I desire nothing else. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever. You have him. You have all that you need because you are in Christ. Fourth, grace given assures our hope in Christ. Paul turns direction here from what they have, and he's looking toward the future and how God is working in the present toward the future. And, and God assures our hope in Christ. In verse 7, he says, Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the return of Christ. In fact, the first five words of the book of Revelation are these. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Almost exactly what Paul says here. We're awaiting the apocalypse. That's what the word is. We're awaiting the end when he comes back. And it's going to be messy for a while. But he's going to fix it. And we have a hope beyond the day of judgment. And we eagerly await that hope. That's the proper posture of those who have received grace, eagerly awaiting something beyond this world, because this world doesn't have much to offer. We look forward with hope, confident expectation of the return of Christ and the final consummation of all things. So... Hope is the outlook, and hope is the posture of God's recipients of grace. That's our outlook. We have a hopeful attitude, a positivity, right? 
And it is the posture, because you've probably heard this before, maybe from me or someone else, that, that, that the word hope is confident expectation, but one of the things it means is an outstretched neck. Someone looking down the street for a parade to come. And we have this posture of constantly looking over the horizon that Christ may return, and it is a good thing. We have hope, a confident expectation that he is returning for us. Do we live in a time of hope? Somebody tell me, yes or no? No, we don't live in a time of hope. We live out hope, but these are days of despair, are they not? That's the way of the world. The way of the world is despair. Things are going to hell in a handbasket, and oh man, and we talk that way, right? But we are to live as people who have hope with a confident expectation that he is coming back. And those who are recipients of God's grace should be characterized by positivity and the assurance that Christ will return. Which brings us to the fifth one, which goes along with looking forward. Grace given ensures our destiny in Christ. He said awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing this subject of the return of Christ. He will confirm you to the end. What is the end? What is he talking about, the end? The end of the world. He will confirm you to the end of the world. The the end of the world is not just the end of the world. It is the final consummation of all things, of God's plan. What do people think of when they think of the end of the world? Normally. Oh, death and destruction, and man's going to blow up the world, and we're going to mess things up so bad, there's going to be you know, environmental chaos and wars and all of these things, and man is going to blow everything up so that any movie or novel that you read about the future is dystopian. That after man messes everything up, there is this world of anarchy and chaos. And that's what we're going to get in the future. You know what? The anarchy and the chaos are now. And God is going to fix it. The end of all things is not anarchy and chaos. The end of all things is, I will make all things new. Right? And he will. He makes all things new. But in a typical dystopian fashion, that's how people think about the world in which they live. That's what people have to look forward to. That's really how people think. Man, if we don't get things right, we're going to blow things up, and you know the environment is going to—we're just—it's going to be a wasteland. And that's all the people think about, and all they look forward to is this miserable view of the world and future. Not for us. I think of uh, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring when the the drum beat of the orcs coming for. Those in the fellowship of the ring, doom, boom, doom, boom, doom, boom. There is that drumbeat of doom that is, that is beating in our culture that things are going to get worse if we don't change, if we don't do something. Let me tell you this. Mankind will not destroy the earth. Okay? He is not able to. Mankind will not destroy the world. We can't do that. Yes, we have messed things up. By sin, because of depravity. But the best that man can even think of when it comes to the de destiny of mankind is some kind of hopeless, dystopian world. That is not the hope that we have, right? We have, he will confirm you to the end of time, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, is that time when the, when the book of Revelation begins and the glorious return of Christ. Yes, he will judge all things, but at the end, a new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, what kind of people ought we to be? Hopeful, joyful, living for the future. That's what we have to look forward to. 
is his return when we are holy. And here, here's, a, here's a bit of a long lesson, but look at it very carefully. We were called to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world. And we will be confirmed as blameless at its end. Whose work is that? God's work. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. And then all that comes in between, the progressive sanctification, he's making you more like Christ with all the graces that he's given to you, all the gracious tools and gifts, so that in the end, it's not like, oh, you made it. You made it past the finish line. Just made it, just barely made it in. Nope. We are blameless before him because he is the one who's confirmed us to the end. Grace. Yes, you're responsible to participate in uh, your sanctification, but you do not achieve your salvation and your blamelessness, your holiness on that day. You were made holy in the past. You're becoming sanctified right now progressively. One day you'll be free of sin and the flesh and death, and you will be in Christ made holy and blameless. That's our destiny. That's what we have to look forward to. It's a fantastic thing that God has given to us by his grace. So, a couple of wonderful verses, Philippians 1, 6. Paul said to the Philippians and to us as well, For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When Christ returns on that day, because you are in him by his grace, you will be perfected on that day. Yes, there is a continuing perfection of, of, of glorious, uh, progressive sanctification. But on that day, we reach the end of the telos, which is a, the same thing. We, we will become perfect. Second Timothy 1.12 For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I'm not ashamed, for I know what I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, the day of Christ. We entrust with him by faith our lives, and he will guard it. He will guard our sanctification, and on that day, on the day that he returns, we will be with him, holy and blameless. In the meantime, um, think about, um, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking or assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, do you know the last part of that verse? All the more gathering the saints, the ecclesia, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because the day is near every day. And it's our responsibility to continue to gather together, to sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thanksgiving, all the one another's until that day. So, the lesson for us, our eternal destiny is sure because of God's grace in Christ. Again, it's not because of your performance. It's not because you're a good Joe. It's not because you're, you're attractive. It's not because of your intelligence. It's not because of all these other things that you did. Our eternal destiny is sure because of grace. Grace, it's all of grace. All of grace. And finally, in verse 9, we see this guarantee given to us. We have the guarantee of grace. The guarantee of grace, verse 9. By the way, this is a... This is a great memory verse. I, I was studying it this week. I remember that it was in my memory bank somewhere and it dropped out. I'm putting it back in. This is a great memory verse. Verse 9. God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. The Corinthians might not be, but he is. God is faithful. I may not be, but he is. God is faithful. You might not be faithful all the time, but he is. 
God is faithful. Reminded of the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, and indeed we will be at times, guess what? He remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. God cannot not be faithful. It's his very character. It's his very being. It's the essence of who he is. He is a faithful God, and everything that he does is done in faithfulness. And he cannot go against his own nature. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not spoken, and will he not do it? Will he not bring it to pass? Of course, because he is God, and he must do what he says. So Paul establishes this faithfulness of God And this is what we are called into fellowship with his son. We began with communion with that. The word fellowship is the word koinonia. But it's more than just having coffee on Monday mornings in your easy chair with Jesus. It is your union with him. Participating in his life. The deep sharing of being in Christ. And how by that grace our lives are changed. And because God is faithful, we know this. God will never give up on you. He can't. If you're a true believer in Christ, God will never give up on you. We might fail, he will not. We might stumble, he does not. And the good news is that even when we do fail, we're still in Christ if we're true believers. Just as Paul was called as an apostle, just as they were called as saints, so are we called as saints. And as he says here, we are called, in same word, we're called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And so we end with this. It's a good place to stop. Our fellowship with Christ means we're in fellowship with one another. Because if we are each one related to him by faith, then we are in fellowship with one another. That's where we started back in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of, of blessing, which we bless, a fellowship in the body of Christ, a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ, a fellowship, a participation in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake together of the bread of life. So we... Being in fellowship with him are in fellowship with one another. Paul closes this Thanksgiving here because with these words are very important, and we'll tie it in next week, because he's going to say, I've just called you back to all these gracious truths that are are yours, one of which is you've been called into fellowship with his son, but you're not living it out. We need to talk, and we'll get to that next week. Thank you, Father for words that are true, truths that have changed our lives. Would you transform us by the grace that we've been given in him. Amen.